So it's actually very simple. All life discipleship is, in a sense, what it says on the tip. All of life, being a disciple of Jesus. That's what all of our primary call is to make disciples. And the reality is that most churches don't do that. The core issue is not a work issue. The core issue is not that we're not making disciples for the workplace. The core issue on the whole is that we're not making disciples. Welcome to the Lausanne Movement Podcast, where we have a passion to accelerate global mission together. I am your host, Jason Watson, and today's episode is tailor-made for the vast majority of us, the 99% of Christians who are not in what we conventionally consider full-time ministry roles. Yet each day we find ourselves on the mission field as we go into our workplaces each day, take care of our homes, and walk onto our schools and university campuses. In this episode, we delve into whole life discipleship and how we are called to live for Jesus in every facet of our lives. Our guest is none other than Mark Green, mission champion and former executive director of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, a prominent figurehead in the faith and work movement. Mark will be sharing inspiring examples of how everyday work can be a form of worship, an opportunity to exercise faith, and a platform to demonstrate Christ's love in practical ways. Let's dive right into this inspiring conversation with Mark Green. Welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you with us today. Thank you, Jason, and shalom to you. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today as we speak about whole life discipleship and seeing a workplace and part of our life as ministry, not just seeing the church as the sole place for ministry. And I've I spent, we spoke off air and I shared with you that I've spent the past decade ministering in my local church. And as you know, 99% of a local church is typically workplace Christians. And I spent many years trying to figure out how to inspire and disciple my congregation and seeing their lives and their workplace as a place of ministry. And I know that you've done the same through your work with LICC. You shared a vision of how this plays out in the world. And so I'm really excited to jump into these concepts with you. But before we do that, Mark, you know, one of the things I love about doing these podcast interviews is hearing the backstories to people's passions, to how God has moved in their lives. Now, your work has focused significantly on how Christians perceive their vocation and light of their faith. But could you share with us your journey and what led you to focus on this as an intersection for you, particularly any turning points or influential moments that really reshaped the way that you saw your life and that you saw your ministry? So I become a Christian when I'm 23, just in my last month at university. I'd already got a job in advertising. I carry on doing advertising. And I was being discipled by somebody who worked with the Navigators at the time, one-on-one. -on -one. I came from a Jewish background. I didn't get on with church very well to begin with. But he got me one-on-one -on -one and they got me to a small group. And then I was invited to go and work in America on Madison Avenue, which is kind of like every ad man's dream. I didn't have to think very long or hard about it. So I went over there and I had the name at that time of one person in New York. There wasn't a, what you might call a, a church paid navigator worker in New York, but there was what they called a lay staff worker, a guy called Louis Trippett. He worked for the, as a lawyer for the Bell Telephone Company. And I went to his church and that was a key turning point. It was a small church, Trinity Baptist Church, New York, up 180 people on a Sunday, maybe 120 members, not big for New York. And they had, not that I had the language, because I didn't grow up Christian, but they had a disciple-making vision for their church. 
lots of things you can do in New York, but they decided people come, they stay a few years, they go to the suburbs. So what's our calling? Our calling is to build these people up so that when they leave here, they're much stronger Christians. So it was absolutely in the DNA of this place, not that I knew the language. So I was being discipled, and then about three years in, they said, we'd like you to teach Sunday school, an adult Sunday school class, which is an incredible gift. Particularly if you become a Christian late, you've got to catch up. You know, sermons are great, but it's not enough, really. So they asked me to teach an adult Sunday school class on workplace ministry, which I, I didn't know I was doing, by mm -hmm. the way. You didn't have the words because to to frame that. I didn't have the... I didn't have the category, but my disciple had seen, well, you know, you seem to be thinking about your work. You seem to try to give it to God. You seem to be wanting to share the gospel with people. Why don't you teach class on it? So I taught this class. It wasn't sort of what, you're too young to remember this word, but yuppie. It wasn't a young urban professional church. There were young urban professionals. I was one of them, but it wasn't that kind of place. And three classes at the same time. 25 people came to us, which is about the right number. And every week at the beginning, we'd have this little sharing time. You know, what are you seeing God doing in your workplace? And we had secretaries and we had, you know, clerks and we had a banker or two and we had this and we had that and just people doing jobs and nurse and so on and so forth. By the end of the third week, we had to put a, a cap on the sharing time because God was doing so much in so many people's lives that if we were actually going to do any new content, we had to stop. So we put a 10-minute cap on it. And what that adult Sunday school class taught me really was that God can work through anybody in any context. And it was exhilarating to see what was going on with people's lives. They were turning up just kind of bouncing. God is working through me. I'm going to work and God is with me. I don't have to scuttle home to the small group at the end of the day to feel like I'm doing something for God or to serve in the church. Didn't mean they didn't serve in the church. Of course they want to do that. But Suddenly their whole day was like this. And the number of stories that came out of it was just extraordinary. This is not very difficult. I'm not theologically trained. I've only been a Christian three years. I'm doing something I didn't know I was doing. I'm teaching in a, a Sunday school class when I haven't got a clue how to teach. And yet the Lord is working this amazing way and people are being released in all kinds of job areas that I know nothing about. So like everyone was in advertising, so let me show you how to do it in advertising. There was much more senior people and much more junior bands and so on and so forth. So then a few years later, I come back to England and I felt called to go to Bible college, theological college, London School of Theology, as it's called now, not to be a minister or church paid minister, not to be an overseas ministry, but I'd just been turned on by the word of God, by, essentially by my disciple. And I went there, I, I noticed pretty soon that no one was talking about this in the UK. There was one guy in the UK who'd written a book called Richard Higginson, you know, in the last 10 years or so previously on work. Just one person, brilliant man, working in the theological college as it happens, a doctrine guy. And that was it. It wasn't on the curriculum anywhere. And virtually everywhere I went, no one was being encouraged to see their work as significant to God, which was a symptom of a much bigger problem, which I later realized. So I began to speak on it. And... Everywhere you'd go, I'd do my 45-minute presentation or do a sermon and people would be saying, oh, I wish I had heard this 20 years ago or, oh, I've always thought that. Why? You know, now I get it. Now I get it. I always had this sense that this was important to God, but oh, and that's how it began really. And so for me, over the years, I suppose it's got deeper and deeper because what's really going on here 
is withholding people from their God-given ministry and giving them a diminished imagination for their relationship with God. Because ultimately, what's exciting is I get to walk with God minute by minute. Yes, there are benefits. I get to share the gospel or I get to minister in a particular way. I get to bring the wisdom of God or the shalom of God or the presence of God, at least that, into these contexts. But ultimately, I'm walking with Jesus. And that's what's being withheld from people, the consciousness that they're walking with Jesus day by day. And it doesn't matter whether you're going to the school games, whether you're going to the bowls club, whether you're running IBM or you're emptying the bins. If I'm doing with Jesus, that is a liberating, exciting, gripping idea. And we want that for people. I remember once going to um, speak to some church leaders in Liverpool, and I was being driven across the town by the lead pastor's wife of this movement. And she worked for the National Health Service as an administrator. And she said, you know, there was this moment in her life when she got it. And suddenly she was actually working harder and differently. This is her ministry. And she said these words, I never forget them. She said, some people die without knowing the ministry that God has for them. See, if you don't think that what you do every day is significant to God, then there is an inbuilt sense of futility in your life. And that is a tragedy, really. So it, it's a deep sadness that fuels this, as well as a great excitement. As you were sharing, I was just reminded of Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it is, where it speaks about how God has equipped the church and gifted the church with pastors and prophets and evangelists and teachers and apostles and that whole idea of a fivefold ministry to equip the saints for ministry. And I'd love to hear from you just in terms of a biblical vision for this, as you've gone around and you've shared the vision for whole life discipleship, this idea of being able to live out your faith in the workplace. How does the biblical narrative inspire and inform the concept of work and vocation as a calling for Christians today? And are there like any specific scriptures that have been particularly influential in shaping your approach and shaping people's perspective of revisiting this idea of, oh, Ministry isn't just happening in the church. It's, ministry isn't what the pastors are called to do and I'm receiving. It's they calling me and they're equipping me to be ministers of the gospel wherever I go into my life. Are there any particular scriptures that have been meaningful in your ministry as you've been trying to share these ideas? Oh, well, how long have you got? <laughs> I mean, at one level, the core issue is the gospel. And what's tended to happen around work is that it's been seen as a church-approved special interest. And if you like, in verse terms or in, in passages, and I'll give you a few in a second, you know, lots of people have heard a sermon on Colossians 3, whatever you do, work it with all your heart. It's an absolute key text. The problem is Colossians 3 doesn't really make any sense except as an expectation, unless it's connected to Colossians 1. Unless it's rooted in Jesus is the creator, co-creator of all things, and God's plan in time and eternity, is that he would come and by his blood shed on the cross, renew, restore, reconcile all things, whether things on heaven or things on earth, to himself. It's because he is the co-creator, the Lord of all, and the eventual redeemer and renewer of all things, that all things matter, because all things matter to him. So he puts us on the earth in Genesis 1 to do what? Well, to work and steward or care for, release the potential of his creation. The first thing he does is it gives us work. 
Well, the first thing we see God doing is working. So for me, you know, it's a misreading of the whole biblical narrative. The moment you disdain is how can it possibly be that we've decided that somehow all these other things are important when the first thing God tells us to do is to go work. One of the key texts most recently really that we've found so helpful to people is actually Genesis 1. And the way that we've come at that is to ask the question, what do we learn from God's objectives in work and the way he works? So first of all, we see that he's a worker. Secondly, we see what is he doing? He is creating a context for human flourishing. That's what he's doing. And then when you ask, how does he do it? Well, he brings order. Does your work bring order? His work provides. Does your work provide? His work generates joy. Does your work generate joy? In what way? His work brings beauty. Does your work bring beauty? His work releases potential. Does your work release potential? And then you apply that to housework, which has got to be the most demeaning thing. And if housework doesn't matter, then we don't have to do it. It doesn't matter to God, why do it? But housework brings order. Housework provides. Housework brings joy because a tidy room is a bit of a joy or more joyful than an untidy one. Housework brings beauty because when things are all in their place, usually it looks better than it did before. And housework re releases potential in people to get on with other things without having to do X, Y, or Z before they do it. It makes relationships better. And unless, in a sense, we can see how the way God is working, what God is trying to do in the world to bring shalom, if you like, in Jeremiahic terms, as well as in Colossians terms, peace and so on, to bring shalom, to bring this sense of flourishing and wholeness to people, unless we can see how our little thing over here contributes to that, well, then I'm not part of the mission of God. But I am part of the mission of God when I'm hoovering, if I'm doing it for him. And I'm making the place better for my wife or my children or the dog or whatever it might be. I am doing that. I am making it more beautiful. I am making it more like he would like it to be. So for me, it's endless doctrinally in terms of the understanding of what God is up to. It's endless missiologically because the Missio Dei embraces all creation, the whole cosmos. And it's almost endless, not quite endless, but it's endless in terms of what you might call the biblical models of it that we see, which is often a hermeneutical challenge rather than, it's not like we're looking for something that isn't there. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that in terms of a, a text. One of the key texts for me is Ruth chapter two, which is Boaz in the field or Ruth and Boaz in the field. And what tends to happen with Boaz is because he's called the kinsman redeemer, we absolutely scuttle forward to the New Testament and go, he's a type of Christ. But the text, the text itself, invites us to look at what kind of man is this? He's called a man of great character, man of noble character, man of renown. It's the same word used of Ruth, it's the same word used of the woman of noble character in Proverbs 31. He's a man who manages his field in an extraordinary way. He stops any sexual harassment going on. He praises Ruth. He prays for her. He provides for her. She's got no water. Make sure she's got water. She's got no lunch. So he invites her for lunch. He doesn't just invite her to give her some food. He invites her to sit with them. The CEO sitting with the cleaner. He changes the way he does the harvest for the sake of the poor. He shifts the business protocols for her sake. Leave her a sheaf. He invites people his workers into generosity, they will decide. So it's a hermeneutical issue. It's all there. It's not like I'm inventing it. 
It's absolutely there in the text. And it's the same with the Psalms. The Davidic Psalms are primarily work songs. They're about his engagement as a soldier, king, commander with God. And the way we know that is that 57 of the 73 that have the superscription for David have the word enemies in it. Why has he got enemies? Because people are trying to kill him. He has a toxic workplace. So, I mean, a large part of the vision that you're painting for us is actually a disruptive vision. I think of some of your context living in New York City, living in London, in the UK. In many of these spaces, there is this very strong sacred and secular divide that is like permeates into church culture. And yeah. I can just imagine you sharing some of this vision. Maybe people are listening to what you're saying on this podcast, but let's just, for instance, say that you're sharing this at a seminary or at a church and suddenly a pastor is realizing that his perspective is being challenged or a church place person or a normal Christian is hearing this and it's starting to be uncomfortable because what you're painting is a different vision of what the gospel looks like in their lives. Could you share some of the challenges that you've faced as you've tried to share this vision of workplaces ministry as whole life discipleship of taking Jesus into every space of your life? What challenges have you encountered from, let's say, the clergy like the professional Christians, if we can put it that way, and the Christians who tend to just come to church and they hear their sermon and they tick off the box saying, Cap, been a good Christian this week and let me go back into my secular workplace. What are the challenges you face as you've tried to share this vision with both of those groups? And what would you encourage as you speaking to them? What words of encouragement would you give them? Well, well, let's talk about the clergy first. First of all, I love the church. And one of the great blessings for me as a young Christian was, I, I don't come to this embittered. I don't come saying, I've never seen this. I was discipled. I was in a whole life disciple-making church. I know that it can happen. And the other thing I know about it is it doesn't take any money. And it doesn't take, if you like, any specialist staff. It actually is about consciousness. It's a very slight but significant change in grip or vision. And you're quite right. I mean, to begin with, it's very easy for a clergy person to feel got at. So now you're telling me that I've wasted my life. I haven't discipled people. But actually, first of all, you know, the way that we approach this now, the sacred secular divide has affected us all. So let's just fess up. You know, here we all are. This is the way, this is what we've inherited. This is the way that most theological institutions are. We've now done quite a lot of work with theological educators for that very reason. No, very few people say, no, we're not affected by the sacred-secular divide. Oh, yes, we've been in whole life disciple-making forever. But actually, nobody says that. So at one level, that's the easy bit. The harder bit is pastors work hard, usually, and they have a lot to do. And the question is, is this possible? Can I make the shift? How do I make the shift for this? And the way we've approached this is by essentially saying, yes, there is a big, if you like, theological shift. You're being called to make disciples. That's the primary call. That's what all of our primary call is to make disciples. And the reality is that most churches don't do that. The core issue is not a work issue. The core issue is not that we're not making disciples for the workplace. The core issue on the whole is that we're not making disciples for any place. We're making church members, we're making people who come along, we're making fantastic volunteers, and so on and so forth, but actually making disciples the way that Jesus made disciples, coming alongside somebody, looking at them in the eye, knowing what's going on in their life, 
engaging with their character, that messy business, which cannot be done only from a pulpit or even only from small groups, is about creating a relational environment of connectivity between people and accountability and responsibility. Well, that, that's a whole different game. And that, of course, to get there takes about seven years. So you've got to be pretty determined. And you've got to be prepared to start small and start slow. And I think that's where we start with people in the sense of saying, this is really worthwhile because it is the Lord's command. But you can't flick a switch and just make this happen. You can begin to do lots of little things that actually take people in that direction. You as a pastor can just add a question. When you're talking to one of your leaders and you have to talk to one of your leaders because you've got to get them to do things or they need some advice from you, you just piggyback a question. Tell me, how's it going at work? Or how's it going at the school gate? Or how's it going? You piggyback a question, you make an inquiry. You know, within a service, you're going to be praying. So just add a prayer somewhere about where people are during their daily life. You're going to be doing confession. Lord, we bring up our relationships before you, our relationships here, our relationships in our family, our relationships with our friends, our relationships at work and at school, at work and at school, five words. Very small things over time begin to build to make a big difference. And of course, you're going to preach. So have you asked yourself as you address this passage, how I actually looked at the text here? I mean, which is an outrageous thing to suggest to a Lausanne audience. Have you looked at the text? But curiously, one of the things that's actually quite hard to do for very trained people is not to jump to all the theological things that we can see are under the surface or all the connections that we can make. So, you know, he says, I'll give you another example of what I mean. You take Acts 27, Paul's journey in the boat. Here's an evangelist in a boat going somewhere. Jonah, let's compare Jonah and Paul, both sent to the major towns. I'm sure we're meant to. Or here's somebody in a boat and there's a storm. Oh, Jesus on the boat on the storm. Great. Or here's all the forces of darkness, the storm, the sea, ranged against Paul getting the gospel and, you know, God, demonstrating that he can triumph over all these forces of darkness. Paul's Gethsemane, if you like. Well, yes, probably. But he's also in a boat. And with a load of people for a while, it's a workplace. He's got something to say, which he challenges power, speaks to political power, military power, and if you like, expertise, and says, this boat's going down. And then he prays for them, and he ministers to them physically, he ministers to them emotionally, and he ministers to them practically. He's in the boat, concerned for them. And because he's prayed, the angel of the Lord comes and says, the Lord has given you everybody in this boat. Well, what boat are you in? So actually what you have is Paul in a workplace for an extended period of time, busy ministering. I'm not saying it's the only thing to say, but something happens when the lens shifts. At one level, it's everything because the lens has shifted. But at another level, most of the time, you're not adding any work. And that's what pastors need to hear, because the last thing they need is another thing to do. The last thing another person in the congregation wants to hear is, here's another thing that I need to do, another thing that I'm going to fail at, another thing that's going to make me feel guilty about being a Christian. I love that paradigm shift and the use of scripture to anchor us in that. 
You know, Mark, as you were speaking, I realized that because of my connection with LICC and my engagement with some of your resources, that we've been speaking about a concept that we haven't quite articulated well for the audience that's listening. And that is this idea of whole life discipleship, which is deeply integrated in what we've been speaking about. But could you please take a moment just to describe and define whole life discipleship and perhaps how that might be different to the way that we would traditionally or may define discipleship within our own traditions? I realize it's a very broad challenge to give you, but specifically just to define what is whole life discipleship and what does this mean for a normal person that's just listening to this podcast? Lots of definitions of disciple. One of the ones that we have found useful is a disciple is someone learning to walk the way of Jesus in their context at this time. If you're 17 at school, you're learning to walk the way of Jesus in your school context at this time. If you're 27 and been married for four years, then you're learning to walk the way of Jesus in that context at this time. And the point about it, it seems to me, is that the disciple is learning the ways and the words and the practices of the master that are appropriate at that moment, that will certainly prepare them for future, but are appropriate at that moment. And Jesus creates, you know, we're created as whole beings, and therefore we present, as Paul reminds us, our bodies, our whole being to the Lord Jesus. So nothing is off the table here. Nothing is off the table. And because we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, we present, therefore, everything that we do with our bodies. In other words, we're not just ethereal beings thinking things in our heads. We are embodied creatures seeking to walk the way of Jesus in everything that we do. And at one level, it is as simple as that. But what you're coming up against is a sense of that spirituality or following Jesus has particular markers around particular spaces say a church space, or a social action space, or a home group space, particular times of the day or the week, a Sunday is a holy space, a small group is a holy time, a volunteer period of time on a Saturday is a holy period of time, my quiet time is a holy period of time, and so on. As opposed to saying all of time is God's and all of space is God's, and every space is an opportunity to walk with him and seek to respond to whatever the Spirit is prompting you to do and be and say in that context. So it's actually very simple. Whole life discipleship is, in a sense, what it says on the tip. All of life, being a disciple of Jesus. The tension is the models that are in our heads about what that looks like. And that relates also to, obviously, to certain kinds of jobs and therefore certain kinds of activities. So there is a holy hierarchy which says that if I am church paid, then my job is likely to be holier. Even if I'm an administrator, I'm church paid and an administrator, church paid and a graphic designer, then that's holier. And obviously you go up the church scale and you go to pastor. They used to be the holiest ones. And then I think for a season it was overseas missionaries. And depending on how old you are, it's probably worship leaders now. I think if you're under 35, <laughs> Very few people want to be the preacher. A lot more people want to be the worship leader. That's right. You're right. We all want to be a rock star. Mm -hmm. and that's never been open to me. So there you go. <laughs> so again, we have these models in our heads about who the holy ones are. 
which get in the way of our really believing that actually what I'm about and my ordinary life is actually significant to God and can be lived in a way that is beautiful to him. There's another force, which is the stories we tell. So if the stories we tell are about the great pastor teachers, and it's very important to honor them, if it's about Billy Graham and John Stott and Rene Padilla and Samuel Escobar, all heroes of mine, Dorothy Sayers, you know, C.S. Lewis, yes, absolutely. Mother Teresa got lots to learn from all of those people. But if I don't have a sense of, in my mind, what does it look like to be a godly plumber? Well, I've met a few actually, and I could tell you a little bit about what it looks like. What does that feel like? What does it look like to be a godly mum with three children under five, you know, at the school game? What does it look like? What does that feel like? Have I, have I honoured that person and celebrated their discipleship? Well, you're hard-pressed to find stories about that, which is why at LICC we do tell those stories. We don't write 500-page biographies of both people, <laughs> you know, because what you celebrate is replicated. What you honour, others will, on the whole, often honour. So it's a very, one level it's very simple, but at another level, to your point, the sacro-secular divide has given us a culture which almost at every point militates against really believing this and living it out. So could you paint us a picture about what does that look like? I'm thinking about all these people who are on the front lines. Could you share some examples of practical strategies that people could use to, to help integrate their faith into the work and their daily lives? You mentioned before that it's not about adding to their plate, but helping them realize the realities that are before them. And so could you maybe share with us, what does it look like for someone who's listening to this? Maybe they are ministers, but maybe they are just inspired by this whole concept of being a workplace ministry, a whole life discipleship. How do they apply these ideas into their lives and become aware of the opportunities? Okay, well, let me give this a go, and yeah. then you can push hard if it doesn't communicate. Okay, so one of the things we realized was that lots of Christians don't think they're very fruitful. This was a bit of a mystery to us. And I was working with say, a group of 20-somethings in Scotland. They'd been handpicked by Billy Graham's Mission Scotland for this two-year. I was going to spend two days with them every three months. They were all workers. One was a housewife. One was a graphic designer. One was a retail assistant in a jewelry shop. One was a, ran a football club. One was a banker. One was a doctor. One was a part-time teacher. You know, the gamut, really. And we realized quite quickly after the six months that none of these people thought they were being fruitful for Jesus. And we were thinking, we're looking at your life and thinking, you're, you're really amazing. Look at all the things you're doing. One of, the, one of the women, she was 34 years old, and she had turned around two failing schools in an area of Glasgow, which is not, well, a very poor area of Glasgow. And, you know, to turn around a team of three is pretty impressive. To turn around two schools is amazing, just from a managerial point of view, a leadership point of view. But to do that for two schools, which would be totally transformative of those children's lives, and not to think that you'd done something that was in any sense kingdom-oriented, is also extraordinary. And what we realized was that they had certain measures of what fruitfulness looked like. And what fruitfulness was for them, which they'd inherited, almost certainly inadvertently from their churches, was that there were three marks of fruitfulness for the sort of lay person. Volunteering in the local church, 
important to do. Direct social action, helping with a food bank, looking after the homeless, volunteering with latchkey kids, whatever it might be, and evangelistic conversations. So one of those three things, that's great. And the problem is that on an average day, if you're working for IBM, or even if you're a plumber, you're not actually at that moment volunteering in the church. So no points. And you're not doing direct social action. I mean, you might. A plumber friend of mine has sometimes done a service for somebody's boiler who was hard up and done it for nothing so they don't lose their warranty. Well, yeah, that's direct social action. But usually, no. And then, did I have an evangelistic conversation today? Not today. Well, done nothing for God. But is that the metric of fruitfulness? So then what we looked at was, so what are the biblical framework fruits? So we came up with this framework, and I think this will then answer your, hopefully get to answer your question. And I'll give you a worked example or two if you like. So what we realized is, first of all, that when you model godly character, when you model the fruit of the Spirit, that is fruitful. So today I didn't kill my teenager. Praise the Lord. <laughs> what self-restraint. Hallelujah. Today, perhaps, I didn't answer back in the way that I would have done on other days. Today, I didn't backbite. Today, I did model love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. Doing good work in the power of the Spirit is fruitful for God. He wants it done. It's one of the outcomes he's looking for. So I did the filing. I did it well. I made that cup of coffee, and it was hot, and it was good. I got the report done. I, etc. I did the number of deliveries I was meant to do with a smile. Fantastic. I've done good work. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's ministering grace and love. Well, on almost any day, you've got an opportunity to show some kind of bit of extra kindness to somebody that you might not otherwise. You say hello to the ticket collector on the station. Good morning. Lots of people don't. You go and get somebody a cup of coffee when then you can see they've been sitting at their desk for two hours. You minister grace and love. Have you done that today? Probably you've done something like that. You mold culture. Well, that sounds very grand, molding culture, but you can mold culture by bringing in biscuits once a week on a Friday. Let's have chocolate biscuits at 11 o'clock on a Friday and get together. Being a mouthpiece for truth and justice. Well, obviously in Lausanne, we're very concerned about both truth and justice, and they sound like very grand things, and they are. But also, it's just stopping gossip. It's when somebody says at the school gate, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, Mrs. Watson's always late with the marking, you know. And you say, well, that's interesting you say that because actually she's never been late for my Sophie. And I'm sure she'd be actually a bit mortified to see her. Like, you might want to talk to her about it. You change the narrative. Of course, that takes courage. And then there's being a messenger for the gospel. And of course that matters, but that's not going to happen every day. But those other five, Modeling godly character, making good work, ministering grace and love, molding the culture, being a mouthpiece for truth and justice. I get to do that every day. Every day I get to be fruit, potentially fruitful for the Lord. And you can see perhaps how that works out. You're a barista. Well, there's a queue going out the door on Monday morning and somebody's standing in the queue and they cannot make up their mind. I want a macchiato. Do I want it with chocolate sprinkles and hazelnut syrup? Or do I want it with vanilla syrup? And it's pouring and the people are going nuts but you're being patient. You know, you're making the coffee, you're making sure that the espresso shot goes into the milk within 10 seconds and you make it well. And you're ministering grace and love when it's a long queue, but actually you're asking the Lord, 
Who needs an extra 10 seconds of my time? Who am I actually not just going to write their name on the cup, going to ask how they are, I'm going to smile at them? I know it's busy, but who's that? How do I minister grace and love? How do I build a culture? Barista builds a culture. We all know people, if you've ever, if you're a frequenter of coffee shops, I know you're not Australian, but you still might go to coffee shops. 100% you know, I do, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, there are some people, you see them, and they lift your heart and other people thinking, they're not going to do anything for me, are they really? And then being a mouthpiece for truth and justice. Well, you're a barista and you've got your schedule, you've got your shifts, and you've asked not to do very many Sundays and you haven't got one this month, but you notice that, you know, Geraldine's got three. And you think, well, that's not really fair. So you say to Geraldine, I'll do one for you because you're concerned that that's unjust. And then over time, obviously, you do get opportunities to share the gospel. So what we try to do is to drill down to, into any job, into any context. I could do it for a plumber. I could do it for the school gate. What that framework does is it enables people to see how am I being fruitful? And often the accidental genius of it, not that we went into it thinking this, is that what people discover is how they have already been fruitful. Because the Spirit of the Lord is working in them. Because they may well be restrained. They may well be ministering grace and love. They just haven't seen that what they just did was that. Because that's not the metric they've been given by the church. But it is one of Jesus's metrics. I love that idea of reframing our everyday. And just for our podcast audiences listening, those six are model God's character, make good work, minister grace and love, mold culture, mouthpiece for truth and justice, and be a messenger of the gospel. Oh, God. And I've heard, heard it said that, you know, we focus so much on that last one, <laughs> like be a messenger of the gospel. And of course we have to be, but it feels as if those previous five are a part of being a messenger and it's setting the platform to be able to then share, this is why. These are my realities, and this is why you're seeing these things in my life. Mark, thank you so much for framing that for us. I feel like that's such a helpful framework to share, to keep in the back of our minds as we engage in culture and we engage in our life. But we're going to have to begin to wrap this podcast up. I feel like we could keep going, but I know that that won't be helpful for those who are listening at one speed. So before we wrap up, I, I want to just get a sense from you. You've been involved in this kind of framing for many years now. But I would like us to take a moment to look into the future and speak about the future of faith and work. As you look ahead, how do you see the landscape of faith and work evolving, especially considering the rapid pace of change in the workplace and society? And are there any trends that stand out to you as you think about the future of workplace and faith in the workplace? Are there any emerging trends that stand out to you that you think we should pay attention to? This is a hinge moment, certainly if you, if you like, in the, in the sort of so-called Western economies. I think the technological shift brought about partly accelerated by COVID, remote working and so on and so forth, for big percentages of developed economies, so-called developed economies, people has made a huge, huge difference. Work is much less relational as a result. And that has all kinds of implications for us. How do we make it? How do we make up that gap? How do we help people with that relationality? So there is there are significant challenges about, if you like, the way that we work going forward. And as a result, the mental health of people in work, the way that they're trained, the way that they're mentored. Very hard to mentor somebody who's never in the office with you. 
very hard to develop creativity and all those other sorts of things. So there's that. So that's a trend. And then obviously we've got coming down the pike the impact of artificial intelligence and what that might do to lots of different kinds of jobs. And I suppose, you know, one of the things that the Christian community has got to know is what does good work look like? And we need to know for two reasons. One is so that insofar as we're able, we design it well when we have any opportunity to do that. So good work needs to be safe. Good work needs to provide. Good work needs to give people agency. They need to have some sense of responsibility, creativity, initiative, accountability. All of those things are vital. Good work is relational. Good work is done in the spirit. And so once you begin to have some criteria for what good work, good working looks like, not just the quality of what good working looks like, you can then begin to address the dynamics going forward and critique it bring that wisdom to the world. And some things you can't do anything about. So for example, if you're a, a telecoms engineer, so in, in the UK, classically a British telecom engineer in his van, usually a he, in his van, and he doesn't talk to his boss except maybe once a month, face to face. He doesn't go to a depot to collect most of the bits that he needs to fix things. He actually collects them from one of a variety of delivery points in small shops, which the delivery companies deliver the bits to that he needs the following day. And then he's on his own most of the day. He might say hello to a customer or two, but he's probably not going to see them ever again. So it's a relationally thin context. So I come back from that, and supposing I'm 35 years old and I come back from that at the end of the day, and I'm dying to talk to somebody. Meanwhile, my wife, been working as a teacher and he's had 28 kids in the class for seven periods already and then been in the staff room. She's not too keen on having a long chat. But the point is that I need to recognize that that's had an impact. That lack of relationship will have had an impact on me. Or the fact that it's a dangerous context in which I work will have had an impact on me. Or the fact that it's physically very, very draining. We know that. Or the fact that I have no agency. I'm packing boxes. Well, maybe people, we shouldn't make people do that, but actually I want no agency in a day. One of the things I think that is open to us as Christians is to be thinking really hard about work design and not just for the elite. You know, what does good working look like? What does healthy working look like? It doesn't look like, you know, historically at least, caricature of this is the way they make superconductors in Taiwan. Doesn't look like that. Or sweatshops and so on. So I think work has been affected deeply by sin and it will carry on being affected deeply by sin. And therefore we have got to bring something. We've got to bring the light of Christ and the wisdom of Christ into that. And we have, as I said, a variety of new challenges, both in the developed economies and in the so-called less developed economies. But I think as to if you're asking a different question, or at least part of that question is, you know, the future of, of the church in relation to workplace ministry, I'd say it's very fragile. I'd say that in some countries we've got now, in the US, for example, thousands of ministries, and it's fantastic. But whether that's affected the core disciple-making culture of the churches, I don't think so. In other words, we're still on a remedial platform. And 
the core challenge, it seems to me, for the gospel and for the evangelization of the world is to take seriously the call to make disciples. This is Jesus's strategy and it's his methodology. And we don't like it. It's too messy. It's too slow. It's time consuming. I can't disciple personally if I'm a pastor, a hundred people. I got to disciple some other people before that can happen. It takes time. And we look at Jesus and we appraise him and we seek to emulate him. But if we did a tenth of the work on disciple making, the way he did it, that we do on preaching, you know, coming out of our ears with wonderful, fantastic preaching courses and amazing models of preachers in different streams, praise God for it, high honoring of the word of God. But the reality is that when we talk about discipleship often in some of the global movements, when you look at it, what people are often talking about is a particular issue in their country. We need discipleship for this. We need discipleship for that. It's a discipleship, and it is a discipleship issue. But underneath that is the more simple, basic work of making a disciple, which in the Jesus model means sitting down, eating with people, walking with people, challenging their character, knowing what's going on, praising their successes, correcting their practice, rebuking them if necessary, training them in the way that they should go. I don't think that's part of the focused concern and research of very many major movements. And if I'm honest, I don't think it's really part of Lausanne in the sense that we have rightly noted in 2010 that disciple making is significant. And it's there. And in the 25 gaps, they're there. But nowhere are we saying, as we did in 74, when, we, when there was a prophetic word to the church, this is the issue. How do we do this for everybody? And rightly, we, we need to respond to technologies and digital this and digital that. Of course, at those levels. But there is a basic work to be done. And at the moment, there's not, I think, globally much appetite for that. Or there's more conversation, but it's not yet part of the culture. And why that's important for the workplaces, we will not have fruitful brigades of whole life working disciples making a difference in the workplaces of the world unless we make whole life disciples in general. The one thing is an expression of the other. And many of the things, if you like, that the worker needs to know in order to be fruitful in the workplace, everybody needs to know wherever they are. I've really appreciated the challenge and the honesty that you brought to this conversation. Because it does become just a, another thing that we say, oh, we have to make disciples, we go out and make disciples of all nations. And that is at the heart and the intention of a lot of global movements and many churches. You know, it is the great commission that Christ has set before us. And so I really appreciate the challenge and calling that out. But I would love for you just to take a moment as we wrap up to perhaps paint a picture of what that could potentially look like. What would it look like as we are on the Luzon Movement podcast? In your mind, what would it look like for Luzon to respond in a meaningful way to not just acknowledging the problem, but engaging with a solution? Well, I'd hesitate to tell Luzon what to do. You've got very, a load of very, very clever people and, and brilliant facilitators and managers, and you understand your own 
mechanisms. But I think, insofar as I understand it, there's a moment, isn't there? John Stott with Billy Graham and Samuel Escobar and Rene Padilla when that big moment was that they, they noticed a theological gap. And the strength of it was that some of the people who noticed the theological gap had already been working practically on how to address it. And that particular theological gap, which they addressed, if you like, the social action, the priority of the poor, and so on and so forth, and the necessary entailment for a concern for people's physical well-being and emotional well-being, as well as their spiritual well-being, that's the right word to use. They could see ways to play that out, and it was played out. And it has happened. So my first point, I suppose, would be to say, if you look at the UK, there's hardly an evangelical church that would dispute it. In fact, it's so obvious, no one even thinks about it. So something happened between 74 and 24, 50 years. And it's there. And it was there in 2011 when John died. It was already there. So this is possible. But the big difference between this one and disciple-making and the social action one is that the social action one can be organized by people who have power. The pastor can say, we're going to do this. Let's just do this. And they can recruit to it. This one is much, much more challenging because it requires lots and lots of people over time to grasp this and to be committed to it, to form a culture like it. Lausanne has to, I suppose, engage robustly with pastors and engage robustly with theological education, which is what we've begun to do, and say, what does it look like? How do we do this? How do you do this in theological education? Let me show you the models around the world. And there are some colleges that have done this and how they've done this, and we've written about them. Let me show you how local churches do this. So for an organization that takes this seriously, you want to privilege where you can find it, the wise practice that exists without making a principle of that wise practice. And I would say that it's a very easy thing for Lausanne to take one issue very seriously if they want to, and to put people around it and to look for that wise practice and to push it out. But somebody's got to want to do it. Somebody's got to think it's important. Well, Mark, I don't know if I ever close an interview at such a point of climax <laughs> and challenge. But I'm trusting that as you've been speaking, the Spirit of God has gone out and that has begun to stir the hearts of people, carrying these things, saying, I know in my head, discipleship is important. I know in my heart, discipleship is important. But now it is time for my head and my heart and my hands to engage with each other and to see that vision come into reality. And so could I ask you to close off our time together and pray for our podcast audience? Yeah. Would you be willing to do that? Yeah. Father God, what a, what a privilege it is to know you through the Lord Jesus Christ, to be one of his daughters, one of his sons. Thank you for that high privilege. What a privilege it is to have your word as a guide and a resource. What a privilege it is to know that your spirit is within us intercedes for us and guides us and strengthens and comforts us in whatever situation we find ourselves this day. Thank you, Lord, for your lavish gifts that you've poured out upon us. I imagine, Lord, that we all want to grow more like Jesus, and we all want to follow him in character, in ways, and in how we live our lives. 
and that we're all grateful to many, many people who've made a difference to us in all kinds of ways. You've called us, Lord, to be a disciple-making church, people who make disciples, who come alongside others and help them grow, whether it's one-on-one or one-on-two or three-in-one or every week or every month or whatever it might be. Lord, you've called us be involved with one another's lives to help us help each other to love and good works, to provoke one another along the way, to nurture one another along the way. So Lord, would you help us to see how in our very, very, very different contexts, you would have us do that? Who can we come alongside? What might we do to create a more intentional disciple-making culture in our family, in our small group? in our workplace, in our church, in our movement. We crave your wisdom and your grace for this, that we might indeed know the joy of the work that your son did in building up others to communicate his beauty and truth and hope to a hurting world. In his name, we crave your guidance and peace. Amen. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for taking the time to share from your experience, share some of your thoughts, share some of your insights and to challenge and inspire us to action. Before we close, I would love to give you an opportunity just to share a bit about how people can get in contact with you or engage with LICC. Are there any platforms or any websites you can direct people to? If they're hearing what you've said, they're saying, wow, I've got to learn more. Where can they go? Well, the LICC websites is a sort of treasure trove of good things in this area. So it's licc.org.uk and it's divided into a work stream and a church stream and a life and discipleship stream. I commend that site to you. I commend Dave Benson's podcast at Lausanne. I think that was the, a recent one which I listened to, which where he paints a beautiful picture of daily discipleship as well. Personally, I'm on Facebook, occasionally on Instagram, trying to stay young. And I've written some books. The one which contains the 6M framework, which is also on the website, is called Fruitfulness on the Frontline, which you might find helpful. Yes, definitely. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to include all of that in the show notes. Blessings to you. Blessings to your ministry and your family and everything that you continue to do for the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jason. Shalom, shalom to you. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Lausanne Movement Podcast. If you like this episode, why don't you take a moment to give us a rating and review and give us a shout out on social media. Next week, we'll be back with another episode that we hope will inspire you to accelerate global mission within your own space. Until next week, cheers.